Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're quite excited today. Alex, who have we got on? Oh, I'm really excited. Well, first of all, I'm pleased because we have an amateur historian with us today. His name's Colin Fisher, who very generously was one of our voices on our Dunkirk program. And he's a regular listener, but he's also a very passionate um, amateur historian. He lives in Madrid. His family's in Madrid as well. He's originally from Scotland. Um, but he is really interested in the Spanish Civil War. And we were casually chatting about this while we were putting Dunkirk together. Because you know how badly I've wanted some Spanish Civil War content on here. Um, and it turns out that he is quite hot on the siege of Madrid in 1936. So, Colin, welcome and thank you thank for you coming. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Can I just say, I'll get this over with now, <laughs> I am so excited to be here on this show. It sounds very sort of stocky fandom but I really can't tell you how delighted I am to be here. Uh, do you know it just we pride ourselves on being utterly non-snobby if someone is passionate That's... and in love with their subject and knows what they're talking about don't care if we don't care if you haven't published we don't care no, if you. you're I mean we've had like 20 year old on we, we just don't care it just you know when you meet the right people to talk about a subject and you are definitely the right person to talk well, about thank you very much Madrid to us um so can you just briefly for people with no background on the Spanish Civil War tell us why there is a Spanish Spanish Civil War whereabouts are we in history and then we'll get to Madrid specifically. Okay, so we're going to be talking about an actual specific date, July the 19th, 1936, which is when sections of the Spanish armed forces rise up uh, in revolt against the democratically elected centre-left government of the, of the time uh, as a popular front. Uh, that's what they're against. However, however, to explain the explosion of violence that takes place, uh, which which rips the country in two, which sets family against family. You've almost got to go back centuries and look at the social divisions that have grown up in Spain. So you have that very much have the haves and the have-nots. You have large amounts of land that's not being actually being used productively, but it's not being farmed by well by <laughs> peasant families. Uh, they're in the hands of large. Uh, large estates run by what the Spanish would call uh, caciques, which are not just landowners, but actually political and social forces uh, that control so much of huge areas. And along with them, you've got you know, uh, the official kind of organs of security, so the Guardia Civil out in the countryside. And you have the church, which is a, a huge part, which is there supporting a very conservative, small-c conservative uh, uh, society. And there's various attempts at various times in Spanish history where the noblest 
most intelligent men and women attempt to change it and doomed to failure. Uh, and you see through the whole of the 19th century, you have installation of the First Republic, uh, uh, and you have the uh, restoration of the monarchy after that. You have infighting, you have intrigue, uh, you have illiteracy on a scale that is, it's, 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 it's terrifying. Uh, and somehow, somehow, this country kind of has to continue united. It's also a country with great writers, with great painters, with great culture, with fantastic cuisine, but it's riven from top to bottom with these social breaches. And then by the beginning of the 19th century, so the beginning of the 20th century, you've got, so, you've got nationalism, Basque nationalism particularly, and Catalan nationalism. And that gets stirred up into this heavy mix as well. And then you've got successive failures of governments at the beginning of the 20th century where you've just got one government is in, another government is out. Spain stays neutral in the First World War. It benefits immensely from arms production. Post-1918, the factories close, unemployment rises, government instability. And then there is a coup by General de Riberas, uh, which stays in power for about 10 years. And it's bad, but it's not as bad as what Franco is going to, is going to uh, do. And then you've got the Republic. The monarchy's kicked out in the early 30s. You've got the uh, installation of a democratic, uh, republican, parliamentary democracy with a head of state, uh, uh, with a president. And you've got hundreds of parties. And you don't have political stability. And all you've got is allowing this sort of, place where these forces have the, the space in which to uh, push forth their, their own particular vision on a scale even more than perhaps it was before. So you've got this built-in instability already, plus you've got a very conservative military that distrusts it in, in, in a democratic government, that distrusts, distrusts it for any concessions made to uh, nationalist parties, and when you have things such as education being taken away from the church, you've got a group of men uh, who are willing to think, not the unthinkable, because it's not the first coup d'etat uh, in, in, in Spain, but the difference will be Franco and what he wants to achieve. Uh, so you've got that not so much even left and right. What makes Spain unique is the huge influence of anarchism as a political philosophy. In 1936, outside of the SOE, which is the Partido Obrero Socialista, the, the Labour Party of Spain, which mm -hmm. again is very fractured, you've got these massive amount of, of, of anarchist groups throughout the country. So in a way, I'm almost saying, you know, 36 is, is inevitable. You are going to come to blows, but no one's expecting the, 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 the explosion of, of, of violence. So that's give, hopefully given a bit of a sort of background to to where we're going yeah that's brilliant um i i don't know about you alina but it just sounds like completely like a tinderbox waiting to go up yeah it's, it's just all aligned ready that's to it. implode it. um so why madrid what's going on in madrid and why does we end up being centered on there well as a capital city in itself that that as the biggest city uh, that itself makes a, a, a juicy target, and it's in the centre of this huge landmass. Spain is huge, uh, and 
it's, not, it's not that it has industry. That's what you have up in the north. That's what you have over in the Catalonia. But it's, this, it's the symbolism. It's the historic symbolism of the capital chosen by Philip II after this itinerary of moving around royal capitals. So it's it's charged with 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 symbolism, but the interesting thing is that Franco doesn't want to go hell for leather to to get here. Uh, the you, you've you've got the uprising, which is say July the nineteenth, which is across Spain in the large cities and and the large towns. Uh, it fails up in the north, apart from Galicia, down the eastern coast. Uh, Alicante and so on. It fails. It fails in Madrid and parts of Andalusia. But they're able to get the air bridge, the Junkers 52s that bring over the, Afri- the North African army, and that's that's a game changer. These are professional, hardened soldiers who have been used for 10, 15 years of war in in North Africa. Franco could have headed north. He could just have said, "Okay, uh, we're not motorized, but we're winning every battle." But he decides to stop off at. Toledo. His generals don't want to do that. They want to get into Madrid. But again, he understands the symbolism of this historic city. Uh, So Madrid is a strange kind of in limbo. Everywhere else in Spain is up in arms. Catalonia, you've got anarchism, you've got nationalism, uh, you've got uh, uh, Basque nationalists digging trenches around their cities up there. But Madrid is more concerned with kind of revolution uh, you've got so many militias charging around here in, in their blue overalls, but then you've still got all the bars are open. You've still got all the terrafas open. And then underneath that, you've got the checkers, you've got the secret prisons that are run by many of the militias where people disappear and really aren't actually seen again. You're wearing a suit out in the street. You're probably going to get picked up by a militia patrol. Uh, if you live in one of the richer barrios, then you're going to be very careful watching as you go down the street because, again, you're going to get picked up. So you've also got things such as there's no conscription. So, uh, yes, everyone's all very excited and we're going to defeat fascism, but no one's quite worked out how they're going to do it because basically every advance Franco makes with his forces, there's very little opposition. So Franco... Who is he and how does he fit into the story? Franco, where do you start? Uh, born up in Galicia, doesn't come from any particular rich background, uh, comfortable, trains as a, as an officer, uh, supposed to be at the, towards the end of the 19th century, doesn't particularly distinguish himself. He's small, he has a high-pitched voice, and yet when he goes to North Africa, the North African regular troops, the ones that the Spanish called the, the Moros, the Moors, they realize that he is just a brave bastard. Uh, and that's what's admired. And he is not macho in his own way. I mean, you, uh, you've got, uh, the, I've forgotten the name of the founder of the, the, the Spanish Foreign Legion, blind in one eye, one arm. You know, what is valued in the Spanish military is just machismo. You know, it's, it's, it's to get out there and dominate physically. But that's not Franco. And he's a successful general, but he plays his cards right as well. So all the way through the 20s and 30s, when he sees the way that the Republic is going, he's not laying his cards on the table. He puts down, he puts down very effectively the rebellion in Asturias in 1934. Uh, but he 
uh, which is you know putting down a, a, a left-wing rebellion. But finally, he's sent out to the Canaries in exile because he is clever, and you know the government's not very uh, sure of him. And really, up to the summer of '36, he's never actually said which side is going to go on. And huge sections of the military stay loyal to to the republic, and he's sort of in in the middle. And then he declares his side, which is to be on the nationalist side. But there's a junta, there's a group of generals. Now, he's got support, but he's got a different vision. They basically want to kick out a left-wing government and make things, I think, go back to the, to the way it was before. But Franco's got a different vision. He's got a different vision for a new Spain based on the imperial tradition, Catholic, nationalist, and pure. Uh, and that means something different this time. So he de- gets himself declared eventually with the support of the junta. He gets himself declared by his brother, Nicholas, who plays an important part, as head of state, not head of government. He's not going to be the head of government of a provisional state. He is Caudillo, the head of the Spanish state. It's not recognized by the other side, but however, uh, that's important as well, is that he's very, very aware Oh, history is, you know, there at his shoulders. It's, 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 it's that vision. You won't impress anybody by physique, by physical strength, but there's something about him. And it just, everyone, he falls, and he's capable of uniting all the different groups. Because on his side, he's not just got the phalange, the phalangists, he's got monarchists, he's got the disaffected republicans, he's got the church, He's got conservative parties, and he's able to play them one off against the other, but keep them on board. And that's what makes them kind of complete, unfortunately, the, the sort of perfect person to take charge of the nationalist armies. Well, the government are crapping themselves because they run, don't they? They basically yeah. abandon Madrid for yeah. Valencia, never to return. Yeah, basically that's what they do. Uh, it's odd. On the one hand, they've been riven by infighting because the left in Spain is huge. It's very, very varied. And you've got this huge anarchist component as well. And in just a few days before the government heads off to Valencia, never to return, and there are a lot of sarcastic comments in the press in Madrid about people heading off for their holidays, uh, is that they're able at the last minute to get a united government together involving all the left-wing parties and even the anarchists, which plays, it's very important to have that because it's a the symbol of unity. It's like everyone suddenly recognises, oh, wait a minute, Madrid is actually very important to everybody, irrespective of whether we think the revolution is coming. You said, are they crap? Unfortunately, Largo Caballero, who's the prime minister, there's a couple of things that I could uh, sort of mention here. Uh, when the first Russian armaments arrive over in, uh, in Albacete, uh, over on the East Coast, T-72s, Polycarpovs, uh, monoplanes are being unloaded, some of the best military armament in the world at the time, uh, the, uh, the T, sorry, T-26. It's a fantastic tank. He goes on the radio that night and broadcasts to the people of Spain that that's just what have arrived. We've got the tanks, we've got the planes, and Franco's intelligence are going, Oh, we didn't know that. Uh, and then the other thing was, once they've left and they're all in Valencia, he sends a, a military courier 
top haste back to Madrid. And he's taken in by General Miaja, who thinks, who's at that time the, the, the general in charge. And he thinks a very important message has been sent from the government. Here's this dust-covered courier, just got off his motorbike. Young officer is ushered in and uh, hands over a, a letter, which Miaja reads and throws it on the ground, picks it up and throws it in the, in, in, in the bucket. The other general there, General Rojo, takes it out to see what it was that made him so angry. Largo Caballero was asking for the return of the, of the presidential uh, cutlery and crockery <laughs> and the tablecloths. So, oh, dear. And apparently this story travelled around Madrid like wildfire. And again, it didn't, it didn't help the reputation of the government. But the important thing is they're not there. And that makes a difference, a good difference. So you mentioned right at the beginning, uh, mass aerial bombardments. Why is this significant at this point in history? Well, it's, it's not the first time it's been done. I mean, you, you, go down, you go around London and there's various signs that show here where the first Zeppelin bombs fell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scarborough is, is, is bombarded by the German fleet. But even with the later, was it, you know, with the Handley Pages, twin-engine bombers yep. flying... Even they, you know, you know, what are they carrying? 500 kilos of bombs? And they're going, you know, six at a time. But we're talking about now uh, Heinkels, Capriones, the Trimotors, even the Junkers 52 can still carry a bomb load. And it's systematic. That's the difference. Uh, I mean, Franco's not alone in thinking about using bombing as a terror weapon. But he does, he's quoted in the Times as saying, you know, I would rather flatten Madrid and leave it in the hands of the Marxists. So you've got these modern, particularly the Italians, this is what uh, people forget, it's the Italian bombers that are actually much more modern. The Heinkels come along later on, the Stukas come along uh, later on as well. And from end of October, well, it's daytime bombings, and they're, they're targeting the western edges of the city where the defences are, but quite clearly, I mean, you can, they've, they've made maps, printed them recently, and you can look at them. Uh, that London project where they map every, every uh, uh, bomb. Uh, and you can see they're bombing the civilian areas, but they're leaving the barrios of Salamanca and Serrano and Balazquez, which are the middle and upper middle class barrios. They don't get bombed, or only by accident. And the casualty rates are terrifying. Uh, and there is no effective warning system. And you think, well, you'd have time to, you know, leave the, leave the, the ration queue. You, know, you, you could get out of there in time. But it's the women and children that are being killed. A school in a town called Getafe is bombed out in the western edges. 70 children are killed in a small town. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the effect is very clearly, okay, military, we want to flatten the defences. But also, we're going to terrify the, the, the population. And it's not till the Soviet fighters appear that the, that the, the Madrileños look out and they're just amazed by it. You know, they're out there in the street cheering and they give them nicknames. The biplane Polycarpov is called a chato, which, which is Spanish for a snub nose. And the Polycarpov single monoplane is called a mosca, a fly. And that gives a big shock because a Junkers 52 with a single, what, 7.92 millimetre machine gun is no match for 
uh, uh, Polycarpov coming at them. So you've got it kind of both ways. It's the first time you've got bombing and the countermeasures against bombing. It's the scale of it. It's the speed of it. Uh, I think I think that's what what makes the difference. The Army of Africa, where do they fit in? Well, they're the ones that are going to do the fighting. I mean, you've got Reketis, uh, which are you've got Reketas, Reketis, Banderas, Tabores, which are all the Spanish different units. But the ones that are really played a big part are called the Banderas, which is the Spanish for flag. Uh, these are the Spanish Foreign Legion, who, by the way, are not like the French Foreign Legion. They don't employ foreigners. They fight in North Africa. They fight in the extranjero. They fight in the foreign countries. And they are professional and they are tough and they don't take prisoners. They are supported by a large, you'd call it a mercenary army of North Africans who were the rebels fighting against the Spanish beginning of the 20th century, uh, the, the Moros, uh, uh, the Moors, have a fearsome reputation. They, if they'd been given the chance and just told to head for Madrid, they would have taken it. So they are the shock troops, not just the shock troops, they are the breakthrough troops, they are the consolidation troops. I'll give you an example. Uh, the first T26s attack a, a town called Cesena, west of Madrid. And it's 15 of them. It's the first time they're in action. And they break into the town and they cause merry hell. They open up with everything. It actually starts off, the tanks are so far forward from the infantry, they don't realise that they're actually in nationalist territory. So uh, the tank commander pops the hatch open, looks out, sees foreign troops and speaks in French and says, would you mind moving? We have to get through. The Spanish regular says, uh, are you Italian? And the tank commander realizes, oh shit, <laughs> closes the hatch and they open up and they, they destroy everything. It's cavalry, it's infantry, it's unprotected. But the thing is, the regulars, the, the, the NCOs do what they're meant to do, the junior officers do what they're meant to do, reorganize and counterattack. They find petrol, they put it into bottles. This is before Finland and Molotov cocktails, glass bottles filled with petrol paraffin or whatever, filled with gel, and they fling them against the tank tracks. The T-26s have got rubber wheels, rubber-rimmed wheels. They catch fire, they become immobilized. The, the crews try to get out, they are killed, no prisoners are taken. Out of the 15, I think five are knocked out, not by anti-tank guns, not by other uh, 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 tanks, but by regular infantry reacting as they do. What do they call it? Muscle memory. So mm -hmm. when the stress hits, you pick up your rifle, you open up, you regroup, you get the high ground, you, you dominate with whatever heavy weaponry you've got, even if it's glass bottles filled with, with petrol. So that gives you an example of who we're dealing with. But they're not used to urban fighting. And that makes a huge difference when they come up into the towns and barrios uh, in the suburbs of Madrid. They're not used to being outflanked. They're not used to strong points. They're not used to also a huge line of communication. But what they've got in their favor is they're terrifying. They are terrifying. They have a reputation well-deserved for arbitrary violence. They are a reputation for fearlessness. Uh, the, what was it, the, the motto of the... Spanish Foreign Legion, 
is Bibi la Muerte, Long Live Death, right? Uh, the songs they sing are all religious, but it's all to do with death. It's in their DNA. So uh, if, if, if you don't have the best troops, and it could be communists, it can be the Fifth Regiment, if you don't have disciplined troops facing them, that's a problem. And that's where the breakout will, will, will happen. Wow. Um, right, you've given us the name of a few personalities, so let's colour this in a bit. Um, tell us about General Miaha. Miaha. He's a cheery bugger. <laughs> he's, he is, a, he is a, a, a pretty mediocre commander. He's always had bureaucratic roles. He's thrown into Madrid, and he's an organiser. He can actually organise. He knows that the secret to defending Madrid is not, if you'll pardon by Spanish, to have cojones the size of, of, of uh, houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's to actually have regular supply, feed the men and get army to them. That's what he knows. He's also a great character. Uh, he doesn't su- suffer from lack of rations, I'll tell you that. He's got a great speaking voice. He's recognisable wherever he goes. He's like a general pattern, but, with all the, but without any of the nasty stuff. And he quickly inspires confidence. So he's very much, all his companions companions would have been surprised to know what he achieved because he didn't show any of this uh, beforehand. And he is essential. Any battle after Madrid, no great shakes, but he's the right man to to help save Madrid. General Rojo, General no, Red. General Red. And he is, a, he is a Catholic. He is a faithful supporter of the government. Uh, he is very cerebral. If he'd been picked up by the militias, I'm not quite sure what would have happened to him because he is not, in a way, a man of the people, but he is loyal. He has taken an oath to the democratic government of Spain. And whatever the atrocities that have been carried out, and they were, he is loyal. And he works really well with Miaka because, again, he understands. He understands the importance of organizing a defense. And they have a stroke of luck. The, the plans of attack fall into the hands of the Republicans. And for once, they do it right. The commander who gets the, who, who gets the plans realizes they're important. God knows what they're doing in one of those wee Italian tankettes. The worst place to <laughs> anything. Uh, they're worse than dinky toys, but he gets them, he takes them straight to Miaka and he forces his way in. But it's General Rojo who looks at them and says, yeah, they're real. But he's made one mistake, meaning uh, General Barella, who's on the other side. He's left his centre weak and he's the one that recognises that weakness. We attack frontally, we hold the front, we attack his flanks. He's not ready for that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, what about Buenaventura Daruti? Ah, well, he's just going to be a he's appearing about mid mid November. He's had a huge career uh, as a fully, you could say, signed up anarchist. Has mm-hmm. uh, grown up in poverty, has educated himself. It's part of that strong Catalan tradition of anarchism. He's organized and he's very recognisable. I mean, you know, he's he's, he's got oodles of charisma. Uh, and he's organised the Aragon Front. He's been trying to capture the city of Zaragoza. And he's de- determined that, just give me some more men, I can capture this major city. And he goes down to Madrid. He takes over a 1,000 of his, of his men with him, a bit reluctantly. But it's, he says, no, this is where the battle is going to be. Now, he's going to end his life there. But no one knows exactly how it happens. Literally, n- near the front line, but, you know, I've been down where, where he dies. It's built up, it's urban. And one of these lone shots rings out. Oh, hang on, like, take your hand away, because when you do that, it pushes oh, the microphone right up to your mouth. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Right. So you said you've been down there. Yeah, and he, uh, he dies in mysterious circumstances, maybe by his own men, maybe by someone disliked him. But basically, it's literally a lone shot out of nowhere not in the front line, and he dies. And his funeral, I mean, it's a huge outpouring of, of, of grief. Whatever the military efficiency of his, of his men, uh, he was a hugely popular uh, dynamic figure who didn't have to be in Madrid. Um, and finally on your list of characters, you have Arturo Barrea, and ah. is it Ilsa that he marries? Ilsa, Ilsa Barrea uh, Kulksar. Uh, Arturo Barrea, uh, born into, well, basically his mom is a washerwoman, goes down to the River Manzanares along with hundreds of other washerwomen and does other people's washing in Madrid River. That's his upbringing. Uh, his father, I think, was a soldier killed in North Africa. Uh, he has a huge long career. He wants to be literary. He's self-taught. Uh, and he wants to be a writer, but he's got no connections. And, you, and you're not enchufado. If you're not plugged in in Spain, you're at a big disadvantage. But again, the Civil War makes him. He's made the censor. He is, he is the one that reads Hemingway's news reports and says, no, you can't write that. You know, he's the one that's uh, having to make sure that nothing bad goes out. Uh, and eventually exiled, uh, along with Ilsa, ends up in London ends up in the English countryside and loves it. He loves warm beer and he makes paella. <laughs> and he writes his memoirs, three volumes. They're in English, they're now in Spanish, but they were in English first because Ilsa translates them. T.S. Eliot loved them. I think Orwell uh, 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 loved them. If you get a chance to read them and you want to find out about the period we're talking about, question mm-hmm. you asked about the lead up, that's it. That's the guy to read. Now, Ilsa is the great unknown. She, uh, she is Austrian, I think, uh, from, very much from the left, is married, comes over, meets Arturo, 
Uh, he's married. Uh, they, they fall in love, have a relationship, both get divorced, both, both get married. And she's never had uh, a great reputation. I'm not sure quite why. She's quite spiky. But she's the one that says, get Arturo to say, look, stop censoring everything. Things are really bad just now in Madrid. Let the reporters report it. It's not going to weaken the cause or make it better. And as such, they come under suspicion and they narrowly escape. Now, she herself writes a book called Telefonica, which is the name of the building where the telephone company was, which is where the censor was, right in the middle of Madrid. Well worth going to visit. Uh, uh, it's only in Spanish and it's crying out to be translated into English. It's based on her experiences with Arturo about their relationship, about the difficulties, about her commitment to the people of Spain. It's not propaganda. It's much, 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 much more depth than, than that, but it really needs an English translation. So again, there's, and then you've got the last group, which are just the people of Madrid. Mm-hmm. We'll cut, touch on them in a minute. I know that you walk the battlefield, the city, yes. and you know many places where it's still possible to see the battle, to see evidence of the battle. So tell us about Casa de Campo. Casa de Campo is an old royal hunting ground right on the west of the, of, of the city. So it's never been developed. And I think probably with the uh, monarchy being chucked out, it's taken into, into public hands. Uh, I mean, there was public areas there, there beforehand, but it's a huge area. I mean, royal hunting lands are huge. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, what can I say? It's forested, I would say. It's hilly. It's got rivers running through and so on. And that's where the attack comes from. That's what the nationalist forces have to push their way through. And they do, but it isn't easy. It's like funneling them in. It's exposing their flanks. It's stretching their lines of communication. It's land that they're not used to, although it's not urban. It's not exactly, you know, the open, I don't know, deserts of North Africa, the bare mountain lands in the Atlas Mountains. So it's, it's, it's not territory for large-scale manoeuvres. The little armour that they've got, and they do have Panzer 1s, they do have Panzer 2s as well, it's going to be of no use here. Whereas the uh, Republicans on the flanks, using their T-26 and some armoured cars, well, they've got a bit more of a uh, manoeuvre which they can use. Um, tell us as well, because uh, you told us when we were having an initial discussion about this, you were telling me about um, the Theodad Universitaria, if I said it yes. right, uh, at the philosophy department in particular. Well, what happens uh, is it's the last throw of the dice mm-hmm. because every frontal attack has failed. They're pushing and pushing and pushing in, but they're being picked off on, on, on the flanks uh, they're throwing in more and more reinforcements. There's a bridge called the Puente de los Franceses, the bridge of the French, the engineers that built it. It's a railway bridge. And they try and push their way across that, but it's held by international brigades. And they don't let them over. Also what's called the Guardias de Asalto, the assault guards. They're actually like more of a militarised police force. But they're disciplined and they hold their line. They've got no more reserves. They're out of steam. Uh, where do they go? Well, they hand over to the North African troops who cross the river. 
the River Manthanaris. Now, it's not the Thames, it's not the Clyde, but it's still a river. And so these guys wade through it. They're out in the open, but they are the fearsome moors, the, the moros. And facing them, I'm afraid to say, are uh, the anarchists. And they break and they run and it becomes infectious. And behind them is a university. Beautiful campus university built in the 30s to be modern and new. And that's where that's what becomes the battlefield. They push, the nationalists push all the way through, like imagine a finger being pushed through sand, mm-hmm. all the way through, up a very, very steep hill towards the city, but they don't enter. Uh, the, city, the, the city university becomes the battleground, Department of Architecture, Agriculture, Dentistry, and the Department of Philosophy. And that has to be counterattacked. And this international brigade, I think the 12th Brigade uh, that takes that, takes it. And it's actually one of the English, one of the few English international brigade brigadiers that's there, uh, John Cornford, uh, the poet, and he talks about being in the philosophy building and they're piling up at the windows to be able to perch their Lewis gun on all the textbooks. So it's that irony of this seat of learning being turned into this den of war. And the other thing is, because it's a university, it's a small battlefield. You can walk around it in an hour, an hour and a half. The bullet holes are still there. You can see where the lines of sight were just by kind of following the angles back. Mm -hmm. As I say, the Department of Philosophy was very, very much in the front line. And it's all these interplay of images and, 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 and symbols that can make this so, so fascinating. Um, I remember as well, you told me something about what happened just outside the architecture department. Well, what's, I mean, after this huge defence, and basically uh, by the beginning of December, middle of December, the front is stabilised. And how it's stabilised is Franco's got some troops across and the Republicans never kicked them out. There's, there's, you know, there's just that, say, finger pushed into the wound that is never taken out. Uh, and this means that the front becomes very, very stable. Right? Uh, and Madrid stays like that until uh, 39. So you've got this defence that carries on all the way through. Right? It's a huge sacrifice. The, the, the civilian casualties from war, the hunger, the desperation, all of this. None of it's marked. There's no monuments. You know, it's such a divisive uh, uh, question still inspiring society. It'd be impossible to, to, to do that. But there is a, a monument to the International Brigades that was put there about 10 years ago. And uh, unfortunately, well, unfortunately, people perhaps with less sense of history than they should have wanted to have it removed. There was a, more of a right-wing local government in power then. And the, the, the word got out that because it wasn't licensed. The big thing here in Spain is everything has to have a license. It didn't have a license, so it had to come down. Well, the foreign outpouring of, of protest, it wasn't so much just from Spain, that an international brigade monument would be taken down, stopped that. But what regularly happens, and I've been there and I've seen it, is that it's regularly defaced as many monuments that are put up on a local level or a kind of individual initiative they're often vandalised still and fascist regalia symbols are left there. So it's one of the few symbols that you can go to publicly 
there is a cemetery out in a place called Fuen Caral, where a lot of the brigadiers were buried. Uh, and in the 50s and 60s, I think, no, must have been after the, it must have been after the return of, of, of democracy. But there are monuments to the Hungarian, the Russian volunteers there as well. But it's just, it's just sad in a way that uh, so much sacrifice can't be remembered. And that sacrifice that is remembered, such as the Polish battalion in the Casa de Belazkev, can only be remembered by being hidden away in corners. Just... It's just such a shame. But tell us about the breakthrough that comes in October and November. Well, as I say, the the nationalists have pushed in, uh, but they've left their centre weak. They just didn't expect there would be this amount of resistance. And they notice it from about 20, 30 kilometres out from Madrid. It starts to stiffen. And we're talking about uh, the resistance before the arrival of international brigades. There are some regular troops that are being used by, by the Republic, but you've got the Railway Workers' Battalion, you've got the Educational Workers' Battalion, you've got the Hairdressers' Battalion. And these are the guys, and, and women as well, that are being sent into the front line, waiting for the guy in front to get killed to get his rifle. And they're the ones that are holding the, the line. They're, they're giving up ground, but they're not fleeing, as was happening before. The international brigades come in, they march in. No one was expecting them. They kind of knew they were on their way. Uh, but the Madrileños come out, they're applauding. Uh, they're just delighted. They think they're all Russians. Uh, they can't distinguish the different accents. But you've got Italians, Poles, Hungarians, Germans, some, uh, uh, some, some British. And they march straight into the Theodat Universitaria, where the centre of the, the, the battle is. The nationalists have not brought any bridging equipment. That's what gets me. They're going to cross a river. They know the Republicans have got all the bridges mined, but they don't bring any bridging equipment. So, as I say, once they've tried that counterattack, sorry, that major attack against the Puente de los Franceses, and it's been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, it's a, literally, there is only one option left. There is one unit that is not completely exhausted. And that's North African regulars. And they're the ones that are given. And we're talking, I doubt whether even battalion strength by, by this stage. So it's well under a thousand men. And the only area that they have left to cross is across the River Manzanares. So it's about, uh, would I say, 20 metres wide. And it's not a deep river, but they're up to their chests. They can't, they've got no covering fire. Uh, they've got enfilading fire from both sides because they're exposed. And they're the ones being led by Spanish officers that cross the river. What they do as they attack is they have their war cries. And I wonder if, you know, because you know, it's, it's not preceded by any great artillery barrage. It's literally, we've failed on this front, but the front is 50 metres down the river. We try this front and we go now before dark comes. It's literally like that. And they're thrown across. And at that stage, the Catalan anarchists break. And they run. And there's no secondary lines of, of defence there. So the North African regulars cross. They, they don't even consolidate. They just chase after them. And there are reports that there, were, there was even 
uh, uh, maybe a Panzer one that made it all the way into what's called the Plaza de España. It's a famous statue of uh, Cervantes there. Not in the centre, but getting in there. So troops do make it into the city itself. But just like the Republicans, there's no reserves left. You know, these 500 men that are are pushed in, they're being dispersed about. They're going all over the place. They're not going for the centre. They also can't get a Bailey Bridge across because there isn't one. There's nothing even like it. So they put a plank of wood across. And that's how they get the supplies across and the wounded out. Now, that plank of wood is blown up regularly every day by the Republican artillery and every day is put back together again. But it's enough. It's enough for Franco to say that he's got troops in Madrid and they can't even pour lots in because there aren't lots to pour in, but there are enough. And once they're inside, we're talking about uh, strong built buildings that become strong points. It's not about holding a whole front line. It's about holding the key points. Now, a sort of final part of this is that during this retreat, by the Catalan anarchists. Uh, It's an anecdote. It's either General Miaja or General Rojo, who are near the front, who realise what's going on. Uh, I think it's Miaja that the story talks about. He comes out with pistol in hand and he threatens them. You go back or I will shoot you. Now, there's another part to to add in there. There was another group like uh, who, who operated behind the front lines to encourage the men to stay and fight. And that was groups of women, armed women, that made it clear that if they saw any of their men retreating, they would use their own weapons on them. So I hope maybe that gives us some idea of that day when the, the nationalists break in. But in a way, neither side can really capitalize on in terms of a counterattack or actually breaking into the whole city as a whole. And that's essentially what stays as a status quo for pretty much the rest of the war with some changes here and there. Can you tell us about the journalists? Because they're a constant presence, aren't they? Yes, very much so, from the beginning. Uh, and we've got the famous ones, John Don, John Dos Passos, Hemingway, I think Marta Gellhorn, I'm not sure. Uh, and they all tend to stay down in Hotel Florida, which is unfortunately no longer with us, which becomes very quickly a den of iniquity. I'm not quite sure why journalists are always associated with that. But it's filled with spies, uh, Russian officials. It's a, it's a real hotbed of, 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 of intrigue and I think some pretty heavy drinking as well. Uh, but one of the problems is that the Republicans never feel comfortable with them there. On the one hand, they understand that this is the fight against, they say, the fight against fascism. Here we've got an international forces in our city, Italians, uh, we've got Germans, we've got the North African mercenaries, they would call them. But on the other hand, they suspect the, the foreign press all the time. And uh, every cable that is phoned in has to be over, uh, overheard by someone in the censor department, anyone. So it's slow. Newsmen and newswomen want to get the news out quickly. And it's not happening. And many of them want to give a true account. They don't want to destroy morale, but they do want to let people know that children are dying in the 
in the bombing raids. They do go and they're taken to these sites, but they're very rarely taken to the front line. There are trips organised, but even the front line troops aren't always pleased to, to see them. On the other hand, many of them go up to the Californica Tower, which is still a very, very visible landmark. They're given long-range binoculars and they watch the, the attacks going on in the Casa de Campo, in the Ciudad Universitaria, at a distance, and then go right and back there and, and, and write their copy. So it's really a very much, it's, a, it's never, my impression, a very happy relationship between the Republic and, and the foreign press. So how did the paper of Madrid react? No, actually change that one, Alina. Sorry, just ask, can you tell us a bit about the experience of the, of, of the everyday people? I think, I think horrendous. I think that's basically it. I mean, I think I was mentioning before that, you know, if you did live or if you'd been trapped in uh, Madrid and you're not of the left, you're not necessarily of the right either, but you're not of the left, then you're waiting for that knock on the door. Uh, and people go into hiding. And, you know, with my uh, wife's family here, uh, my sister-in-law's father went into hiding in 1936, and he stayed in hiding until 1939. Now, he wasn't a threat to the Republic, but he just wasn't of the right side. And he would have been about 15, 16. So there's one little example. Another example would be in the barrio of Lavapiés, which has always been a kind of working-class district. So now it's a very ethnically mixed, very vibrant uh, community. Uh, and Arturo Barrea, I think, as it talks about it, it's a, it's a queue of women with buckets waiting for potatoes to be handed out. And that's when the air raid comes over. Uh, and they're caught out in the open. And he talks about the remains of what's left, you know, of who had been humans just before that. And then just torn apart. There's no rationing until, I think, towards Christmas. So being able to get hold of, of food becomes a real problem. Uh, I mean, Madrid needs a lot of food being sent into it. And it's not coming from the north because those lines of communication have been cut. And the ones to the east, over to Valencia, for example, are, are not regular. And Andalusia is not regular either. So already you've got problems with uh, food shortages and black market, of course, as, as, as well. And also large parts, well, basically the largest parts that are being affected are working class districts around the Western edges. And they're the ones that are being bombarded. Uh, the schools are being closed down because it's too dangerous, uh, apart from anything else. So children's education is being, is being interrupted. Mass evacuations uh, are, are, are going on. Some go, some stay. Families are split up. And you've also got, on the nationalist side, the men that are looking over the River Manzanares are, know that their families are still in Madrid. And they are watching the Condor Legion and the Italians bombing the city that they're supposed to take to save it from the godless communists. And they are seeing what's happening to those people. They're seeing, well, they're hearing what's happening to them, wondering if their families are going to, are going to survive. 
So, I, th- I mean, speaking to a neighbour of mine in the place I used to live in, which is more in the centre of the of, of the city, a final example, uh, Anna would have been about 10, I think. And she remembers being out and she remembers it's very built up where the, uh, their place, well, where their place was, but it was just open countryside there. And going out for a walk with her friends, just playing a game and coming across the body of a young priest who'd been taken out on what's called a paseo and shot in the back of the head. And these were, and the way she talked about it, can't call it normal, but it was part of the experience then. It's in, do you know what, Colin, you have been absolutely phenomenal. Oh, you sound you. more professional <laughs> than I do when I give an interview um, and you've been engaging and smart and it's been brilliant. And as a result, I've been massively cheeky and completely left the international brigades out of all of this so that you can come back again because <laughs> I feel we could do um, a show in them just on their to. own. And I know people will love to hear from you again oh, thank because you very your much. passion just comes shining through. Thanks oh, well, so much. Thank this you. is thank you. been my introduction to the Spanish Civil War, which I've wanted to hear about for a long time and never oh. got around to reading about. So thank you. Oh, I'm delighted. And I, I'm just sorry that I'm afraid I didn't, got, I didn't get to mention the, the Polish defenders. Oh, well, we will. Okay. And I when mean, you I come was... back, you can have your art discussion with Alina as well. Uh, oh. I'll, yeah. I'll okay. gen up on that. Yeah, definitely. And then you can spend as long as you want on it. Thank you so much. I can only say again, thank you so much. It's been a joy to be on. Uh, if somebody, if I can finish off by just by saying mm-hmm. this and said, you've been here since 2003, Colin, you speak Spanish, you live a Spanish life, you feel at home in Spain, what's left? And I'm not joking. It would be this. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, you've obviously spent your time so wisely in amassing an amazing knowledge base about the Spanish Civil War. And we oh, will pick you. your brain again soon. Thank you so much. Join us tomorrow when Matt Pope will be talking all about Neanderthal people. Not Neanderthal man, you're not allowed to say that, and he'll tell you why. It's great, he covers such an amazing overview of the Neanderthal people. It's really, really interesting, and it's our first shot at prehistory, so give it a go. And then join us on Sunday when Hussein Kamali will be with us to talk all about his incredible book, which is A History of Islam in 21 Women. It's just outstanding. The stories are incredible. I had so much fun recording with him. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.